Uh, good to be with you on this lovely fall morning, right? What is going on? I'm, I'm not complaining, though. I like, I like the cool weather. It's, it's a good thing. But it is still July. It is really good to be with you. It's good to express uh, just our gratitude as word partners, as a ministry for the partnership we have in the gospel. It brings us great joy. Uh, I'm reminded of how the Apostle Paul spoke of the partnership that he had with the church at Philippi. And he talked about giving thanks with joy. And there's, there's a theme there that partnership in the gospel produces great joy. And for us at Word Partners, and by the way, if you're thinking who's Word Partners, uh, we had been known as Leadership Resources International uh, for a long time up until this year. And we just uh, changed our name to Word Partners to hopefully better express what we do in terms of equipping pastors around the world to, to elevate God's word in their lives, in the, their ministries, and in their churches. And the partnership that we have with churches like Rock Valley, uh, with the pastors we partner with in about 63 countries internationally to teach them and train them uh, to preach God, God's word with God's heart. Our, our whole mission is about being better readers and understanders of of understanders, I think that's a word, of God's word so we can faithfully minister it uh, to others. And you all have partnered with us in that. I was checking it out. It's been about nine years, almost a decade now. Uh, you guys have been key partners on the continent of Asia and working with our director for Asia, um, Dr. Alan Jin, uh, in doing that. I know Pastor Steve has traveled to some of the places we go, and so we're very grateful uh, to that. And I want to report that during this crazy season that we've experienced uh, for about a year and a half, uh, the Word of God has not been bound. Uh, the work has continued. Though our U.S.-based trainers have not traveled much recently, we've been traveling to some new places uh, that we haven't for the last uh, 18 months or so. We're, we're finding out that the model that God presented us with from His Word works. Guess what? When you do things by God's Word, it, it actually works, right? Uh, and that process, that, that approach is a 2 Timothy 2.2 approach of what you've heard from me, Paul said, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others. And that's our model of equipping indigenous leaders who lead the work internationally. And so we break new ground with our American teams, but then we, as soon as we can, begin to hand off the work to indigenous leaders and then gather them into key teams in regions around the world. And so while our staff from the U.S. are not able to travel or very limited in our travel, some of it's opening up, uh, still the work goes on, and we praise God for that, and we thank you uh, for your partnership. I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to the book of Ruth. Uh, open up to the book of Ruth. And I don't know if you have noticed, I'm sure you have, that this phenomenon, in fact, You've probably not just noticed it, you've probably been involved in it. And it's the phenomena of the gender reveal event. We just had one in our family. I'm going to be a grandfather next month. And uh, my son and daughter-in-law uh, had a gender reveal uh, party of sorts. And these things are taking all kinds of different forms. I noticed you can, for I think $6.50, that's not much, you can buy a gender reveal smoke bomb. Uh, back in around Halloween, I noticed you could buy a gender reveal pumpkin. Now we've got all kinds of things crossing in that, don't we? You may have read in the newspaper about four years ago, a, a very excited expectant father in Arizona uh, used his rifle to shoot and ignite a, a, a bunch of explosives that exploded the color blue to announce uh, he and his wife's son, but he simultaneously 
set off a forest fire that destroyed 47 acres and caused over $8 million in damage. These gender reveal things are becoming a big deal. And in the book of Ruth, there is a, a reveal of sorts at the end of the book, the part that we're going to look at this morning. And, and it has to do with a child, but the big reveal is not the gender of the child. Uh, there's a much bigger thing that God wants to reveal about what he has been seeking to accomplish in and through his people, and specifically the message of the book of Ruth this morning. So we're going to look for that big reveal here at the end of the book of Ruth. And I just want to pause for a moment and pray, actually, before we, we get into um, the message this morning. God, we do want to see what you want to make known to us. I thank you, Lord, that you are a God who, who reveals himself to us through your word and preeminently through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, God, I pray that above all else, we would see him this morning as we look into your word. And God, I would specifically pray as well that this, this word and, and the preaching and the hearing of this word uh, would cause us to have great hope, God, that you are the God of great reversals. Lord, that there are things in our lives that have gone sideways, uh, some, for, some of which we are responsible for and some of which we aren't. But Lord, I pray that you would show yourself to be the God of great reversals this morning and that that would cause us to hope in you and to look to your son, the Lord Jesus. In his name I pray, amen. So our text this morning comes from the very last section of the book of Ruth, verses, uh, chapter 4, verses 13 through 22. We're going we're gonna to dial into that, but... We all haven't been in the book of Ruth for the last week or whatever, so we need to get some context here. And, and I'm sure uh, probably most of you know the book of Ruth. You're probably fairly familiar with the storyline. If you're not, you're, you're in for a great treat. Uh, it is a beautiful, beautifully written short story. In fact, I have heard it called, even among uh, people who don't necessarily study the Bible, uh, uh, an exquisite novella. I don't know what a novella is, but it's fun to say. So even outside of biblical circles, people recognize that this is an amazing story. And, and I would encourage you to, to go back or go to this story for the very first time and, and, and read the whole thing through. But let's see if we can just trace the storyline so far as we come into chapter 4. Uh, notice that the book of Ruth comes right after the book of Judges. And it, it actually takes place in the context of Judges. If you look at the very first verse of the book of Ruth, it says that this took place in the days when the judges ruled. And the days when the judges ruled were a mess, if you recall. It was a time of chaos. It was, it was a time of, of great distress. It was a time of great evil and great sin for God's people. And, and the core, the, the root of the problem is related in the very last verse of the book of Judges. I've got Ruth on the right-hand page, and I can see Judges on the left-hand page. And the last verse of the book of Judges states that in those days, the days of the Judges, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and the problem was that there was no king in Israel. It was a time of chaos and of evil and of distress. And that is the context 
of the book of Ruth. And in the book of Ruth, we follow the, the lives primarily of three characters, Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. We begin with Naomi. Naomi and her family live in Bethlehem. It is literally, the, the town's name means house of bread, but there's a famine. And so they sojourn, they move for a while to the land of Moab. It's a chaotic time, and then they move to Moab. Moab is, is it's not, it's not, these are not God's people. This is not God's place, the land of Israel. In fact, God's people were told they weren't supposed to go there. Uh, Moab was the, God, the enemies of God's people. They were a pagan land, and, and, their, and their history was distasteful. Uh, they, they were the descendants of the incest between Lot and one of his daughters. It was just, ew, why would you go to Moab? And so you, we have this whole context of chaos and evil, and Naomi and her husband, Elimelech, and their two sons moved to Moab. And it doesn't go very well for them. In fact, uh, first, Elimelech lives, uh, dies, Naomi's husband, and then both of her sons die. And she is left, it would, be, would seem completely alone. Now, she has her two Moabite daughters-in-law, but they are really a liability. And so when she hears that the Lord has blessed uh, Bethlehem with the barley harvest, she's going to go back home and maybe somehow eke out a, a life as a widow, uh, without children, it's going to be a tough life, but dragging along two Moabite daughters-in-law is going to only make it worse. And so when they want to go with her, she says, no, no girls, you stay here, find husbands here. And one reluctantly stays, but the other one, Ruth, will not let go of her, of her mother-in-law. And so she goes back to the land of Israel, back to God's place to the town of Bethlehem, where Naomi and her family are from. And Naomi considers that the Lord has just wiped her out. She's brought, um, she says, I went, this is chapter 1, verse 1, I went away full when I left Bethlehem, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Even with Ruth standing next to her, she considers that her life is empty. Chapter 2. Scene change in the story. They're in Bethlehem. They're in Bethlehem, and Ruth gets right to work. She's going to go out and glean in the fields to try to care for herself and her mother-in-law. And gleaning is this thing that we probably don't get because we're not really farmers, most of us, I don't think. Uh, but this way that God had of providing for the, the poor and the destitute of his people was that when it was harvest time, you would harvest your field, but you would leave the corners unharvested. And if you dropped something while you were picking the grain, you left it. And the poor and the destitute of the land could come and pick that up. And that was sort of their internal welfare program to care for those who were in need. And so Ruth says, I'm going to go gleaning. And like, great daughter-in-law, you go do that. And she just happens to glean in the field of a guy named Boaz. And in the midst of all the chaos and sin of the judges, there is this really stand-up righteous dude named Boaz who greets his, his uh, workmen saying, Lord bless you, and they respond, Lord bless you. And he has already heard about Ruth. Her character has stood out to him. He's impressed with her because of her character. Not only does she glean, but he gives her food. She returns to her mother-in-law. Her mother-in-law says, Naomi says, where did you glean today? Whose field? She says, Boaz. And Naomi says, Boaz? 
is one of our kinsmen redeemers. And then we get to then this whole thing about what is a kinsman redeemer. Well, a kinsman redeemer is somebody within the ex- extended family whose role it is to redeem or buy back property in order to keep it in the family line, which is hugely important for God's people because the land is connected to the promises that he has made to them. So Boaz is a kinsman redeemer. And the wheels start turning in Naomi's mind. He says, daughter-in-law, there's a way that, that you've cared for me that I can care for you now. And they put into, plan, this, put into motion in chapter 3, another scene change, this whole plan for uh, Ruth to make her intentions known to Boaz that she would like Boaz to redeem her, to marry her, to keep the, the family, they don't have male heirs in Naomi's family anymore, to keep the land in the family, and then through this, this sort of leverite, this is a whole other tradition, this whole leverite marriage thing that you can read about in the Old Testament, uh, as Boaz and Ruth get married, and if they produce a son, that son will be the heir, but he will be the heir of the deceased, of Elimelech and his son. And again, keep the family line going, which is so important in the context of the Old Testament. And so Boaz, Boaz is again impressed with Ruth's character in chapter 3, says, uh, daughter, sister in Christ, you might say in, in our uh, parlance, I will do what you've asked. I will redeem you, but there is another redeemer ahead of me in line. Dun, dun, dun. The plot thickens, right? Chapter 4, there's another redeemer in line, but... Uh, he first he says, yeah, I'll take some property off somebody's hands. No problem. I'll add to my estate. And then Boaz says, yeah, but Ruth, the Moabite S, foreigner, comes with it. And you need to marry her. And he's like, ah, nah, not going to risk losing my inheritance to other descendants. So, bro, you go for it. And Boaz does. And that's where we get to the end, or to the middle of chapter 4. Boaz has redeemed Ruth through this whole crazy handing off of the sandal ceremony. And then the townspeople, this is a beautiful story. The townspeople are like the choir or something in a musical. Every once in a while, they, they kind of pipe in uh, uh, in the storyline. And now we're at the end of chapter 4. Boaz has said, I'm going to redeem Ruth. Chapter 4, verse 11. Are you there with me? Chapter 4, verse 11 Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses of this this redemption transaction thing, kinsman redeemer. We are witnesses. May the Lord, may Yahweh make this woman who is coming into your house, that's Ruth, coming into Boaz's house through marriage, may God make her like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. And may you, Boaz, act worthily in Ephrathah, and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like that of Perez, which was considered an honorable um, house. May it be like Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Okay, that's where we are as we get into our text for this morning. And then we read verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went in to her 
and the Lord gave her conception. And she bore a son. And the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, blessed be Yahweh, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. And may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, is more to you than seven sons. And she, she who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashan. Nashan fathered Salman. Salman fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. This is God's holy word. We ask his blessing on it this morning. This is an incredible story of God's redemption, of God's restoration, of a great reversal. And so let's, let's get into it this morning, moving through two parts. Basically, the text that I just read has two sections to it. The first section uh, in verses uh, 13 through 17 tell the rest of the story. And then the second section, verses 18 through 22, are this curious genealogy that we want to get into. So first, the rest of the story, and then the genealogy. Well, the rest of the story begins in verse 13, and, and we see that, that Boaz is indeed a man of great integrity. He is faithful to his promise. He marries Ruth. It's interesting, back in chapter 2, when he first set eyes on Ruth, I think there's some foreshadowing by the author in chapter 2, verse 5, as he sees her out gleaning in his field, he says, Who's, whose young woman is this? And at the end of the story, the author is saying, she's your young woman, Boaz. She's your woman. She's your wife. He is faithful in marrying her. And we see the prayer of the townspeople from verses 11 and 12 answered. Uh, they pray that she would have a child, that the Lord would, would give her a conception and, and create a, a house of descendants through her and Boaz. And indeed, verse 12, verse 13, the Lord gives her conception. I love the way the that the, the writer says that. I think often as uh, prospective parents, we think, well, the Lord just is, is just going to give us children. Like we, we, there's a biological way to do this, and he just, it's just going to happen. And yet, children are a gift. The Lord gave her conception. He gives her a child, a son, a son, an heir. That's the important part of that. And the family name is going to be per, uh, perpetuated. This is a great time of celebration. The, the townspeople speak words of blessing over, uh, over the child, over Naomi, over Boaz. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer this day. Blessed be the Lord. This whole theme of blessing runs through the book of Ruth. We see it early on in the chapter, early in chapter 2. Boaz comes into the field uh, in chapter 2, verse 3, and um, Verse 4 and says, 
uh, the Lord be with you to his workers. I mean, how'd you like to work at a place like this? He begins with the Lord be with you, and they respond, the Lord bless you. And then after he meets um, Ruth in chapter 2, verse 12, he, he says, you know, everything that was told about you uh, is, is all your faithfulness, and, and may the Lord uh, take you in under whose wings you've come for refuge. And then later, um, he blesses, Naomi blesses Boaz when she finds out that Boaz has been generous to Ruth in verse, two, uh, verse 20 of chapter 2. She says, uh, may he be blessed of the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. That There is this theme of blessing going on throughout this book. And note exactly who these words of blessing are spoken to by the townspeople. They are spoken to and they are spoken about Naomi. And so the author is really bringing us full circle in the story here. We begin with Naomi and in the great tragedy of her life. It is death. Her husband dies. Her first son dies. Her second son dies. She is left bereft. She says, she says of herself, she is empty. There's only death in her life. But now we've come full circle. Now there's this new life, this child, this grandchild, this, this, this heir, the one who will can carry on the family name. And, and the townspeople say, Naomi, she had, or he, this child, has been born to you. And it's interesting, this book is called the Book of Ruth, and yet if you read it carefully, it is really told with, uh, through the eyes of, of Naomi, with following her life. And the major theme is read from Naomi's life. And so their words, the townspeople's words, extol God's blessing for who the child is to Naomi. Note that in verse 14. He will be a redeemer for her. His name will be renowned in Israel. And they prophesy that he will be a restorer of life for her. And they prophesy that he will be a nourisher of life for her old age. And the women bless Ruth, but they only bless her in relation to Naomi and the child. And they say she loves her mother-in-law. And she is more valuable. Think about this. Naomi lost two sons in Moab. She gained a Moabite, a foreigner, a previously pagan daughter-in-law, but the townspeople say that the daughter-in-law, the Moabite daughter-in-law, is more valuable to her than how many sons? Seven sons. And seven is an important number in the Bible. It's fullness. It's completeness. This, this is one uh, prominent, eminent New Testament uh, scholar of a of a generation ago said this is the supreme blessing that you could give someone in this context to say that they are better than seven sons. So why? Why is the author focusing our attention on Naomi? He's focusing our attention on Naomi because he does not want us to miss God's great reversal in this story of the book of Ruth. What God has, has wonderfully accomplished from the beginning of the story, seen in Naomi's life, to the end. In chapter 1, Naomi, this is what Naomi says about herself in relation to the Lord God. She says in chapter 1 that the hand of the Lord has gone against me. 
She says, the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. She says, Yahweh has brought me back empty. She says, Yahweh has testified against me. The Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Now, it's, it's interesting, the author of the story never necessarily affirms whether that's true or not. He just lets Naomi's word in, in her, in her bitterness and in her very real anguish and hurt. He just lets her words sit there while he writes the rest of the story for us. And the rest of the story, the, the end of the story, says that she has not been left without a redeemer. She's not, she is not without. But that this redeemer is going to be a restorer and a nourisher and a provider. And that her daughter-in-law is more valuable to her than seven sons. What an, what an amazing reversal, isn't it? And this, this is who our God is. This is the way he works out his purposes in the lives of his people. Because ultimately, the main character of this story is God himself. God's the main character of this story. The author, the human author, inspired by the Holy Spirit, the divine author, wants us to see God in full display in all his glory. His sovereign hand has, has subtly been working through. Just the subtleness of this. They, they moved to Moab, which on all accounts is a mistake. And then people died and like, well, there you go. You did it to yourself. God's judging you. Yet she returns with a daughter-in-law who at the end of the day, at the end of the story, is more valuable to her than seven sons. And then when they get to, when back in chapter 2, when they get back to Bethlehem, Ruth goes to glean, and I, just, I love how the author puts this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. She just happened to glean. She just happened to go to the field of Boaz. God is up to something. And then there's, there's another redeemer. There's a, Boaz is second in line. But in God's good providence, that guy because of his own selfishness, who's not even named in the story, by the way. I don't think that's just a, a, a minor detail. Uh, one, one commentator calls him Mr. No Name. The author won't even mention his name. He didn't have the good sense to redeem Ruth. What, what did he miss out on? But in God's providence, Boaz did. And the result is this child. Friends, there is a great lesson for us that God is at work even when we don't see it. God is at work even in the difficult circumstances of our lives. Several years ago, I was uh, serving as an interim pastor at a church I think many of you will be familiar with because there's a wonderful relationship and, and historical connection with this one, uh, namely Kishwaukee Bible Church down in Sycamore. And... Um, as I was serving as the interim preaching pastor there and they were getting ready to call a pastor, my heart, I felt, was being knit with that church. And I was like, wow, I could really see myself as the pastor of this church. And I love these people and I would, I would like to be this pastor. I'd like to move my family here. 
And so in the course of time, I applied for that position and went through the candidating process and it seemed to really be going in the right direction. I thought, you know, it's, it's not a lock, it's not a slam dunk, but I think there's a pretty good possibility that this is where the Lord is calling me. And then I discovered that they were also interviewing somebody else. And at the end of the day, they decided to call someone else as their pastor. And I have to tell you, I was very disappointed. And there was, there was bitterness. And, and I, I, it didn't make any sense to me because it seemed so clear that this was a great fit for me and there were people who affirmed that. And, and why, Lord, in the world wouldn't, wouldn't this just happen? It, it, it just seemed to make sense. Well, in the course of time, I, I served with another Christian organization for a while, and then I, I became aware of the position that I now serve in with Leadership Resources, now Word Partners, and interviewed for it and became part of the team here. And friends, I am doing what I believe God called me to do during this time in my life. And you know what? They got a better pastor than they would have had in me. His name's Jesse Meekins, and I get to serve alongside him because they are a partner church as well. And so now I go back to Kishwaukee Bible Church, and I serve alongside that pastor who took, my posi took the position that I wanted. And I have the great joy of telling that story even to him, that in God's providence, he was leading you here, and he was leading me over to Word Partners, but now we're serving in the kingdom together. I didn't see that at the moment. Now, if you look at your life, I bet you can find those places as well. I hope you can. God is at work even when we don't sense it, even in our most difficult and frustrating circumstances, even in the midst of our sin and rebellion. And so this child is a provision for Naomi. And the women of the, of the town sing it. She has been born to Naomi. They, they just straight out say it in verse 17. She receives the child, becomes his nurse, becomes his caregiver. And now, with Naomi holding the child, we see the big reveal. Who is this child? Why was this, was this story told to God's people? Why was it written down for them and for us? Who is this child? He is the grandfather of King David. He, he is the grandfather of, of God's great king, the, the king, the man after God's own heart, the king that God chose for his people, the king by which every other king is going to be judged in the Old Testament. This child is the grandfather of him. That, that's, a, that's amazing. We can't hardly imagine how that would have fallen on the ears and the eyes of the original readers and hearers of this story. What? King David's great-grandmother was a Moabitess? It would sort of be like if you, if you told, uh, say, a 10-year-old kid who idolizes Tom Brady. And you said, you know, Tom Brady, greatest quarterback ever. Ten Super Bowls. I think he won seven of them, his team did. Did you know that he was picked in the sixth round of the 2000 NFL draft? Did you know that 198 players, none of whom play in the NFL anymore, 
were chosen before him? Did you know that my favorite team had six chances to take him? <laughs> and they didn't. You'd be like, what? Really? Wouldn't everybody have wanted him? He's the greatest player of all time. I think that's how that would have, this story would have fallen on God's Old Testament people. You're kidding me. This is epic. Really? King David's great-grandmother, a Moabite. You mean he was almost never born? You mean he was only born because of, of the sinful choices of some people to migrate to Moab in their unfaithfulness? You mean he was only born because of a woman gleaning in a particular field and a faithful man? Wow, that is amazing. So now we learn the story of Ruth is bigger than the little town of Bethlehem where it takes place. It's much more significant than gleaning uh, or a family inheritance or a boy meets girl hallmark ending. The final verses, this final section tells us so. It confirms it. My life verse is Aminadab fathered Nahashan. Nahashan fathered Salmon, said no one, ever. Genealogies, super boring. We don't know what to do with them when we get to them in the Bible. We, like, God forbid you're in Sunday school class and someone asks you to read one of these out loud. Fumbling and stumbling over all these crazy names. They just seem like extra that doesn't need to be there. Why in the world would this author end this story with a genealogy? It, it seems so anticlimactic. Well, let's explore that. Why end this book with the genealogy? Well, genealogies are pretty unspectacular to us. But that's us. In the ancient world, they were hugely significant, especially when it came to royal genealogies. Now, why would that be? Well, you've got to trace the bloodlines, right? You've you got to know who's supposed to be king, who should be king, who fathered who. And so the author is highlighting here God's faithfulness not just to Naomi, but to, to all his people, to all his covenant people. And our text actually here at the end answers the question that is raised in chapter 1. Has the Lord abandoned Naomi? Has he brought her back empty? But there's a parallel question that goes for the whole nation of Israel at this point in their history in the Old Testament. Has he abandoned his people? Have they been left without hope in all this chaos of the judges? Are they without a redeemer? The book of Judges before Ruth, chaos, sin, anarchy. What's the problem? There's no king. The book after Ruth, the books 1st and 2nd Samuel, they are the story of 
God's king, King David. So how do we get from, from chaos and anarchy to the king after God's own heart? The book of Ruth is that bridge and shows us how we get from there, from here to there. And so what happens in the, this little town of Bethlehem has ger- generational implications. Implications for God's good purposes way beyond the few years that the book of Ruth covers. Ruth covers the book maybe 15 years, most of the storyline less than a year, but the genealogy expands 640 years. And it points us to God's covenant faithfulness and his sovereign care for his people and his desire to accomplish his purposes for his glory throughout the ages. You see, by caring for Naomi along her pathway from empty to full, God powerfully demonstrates his covenant faithfulness to all his people. Not just Naomi, but to all his people. I think that is the the main idea of this text. I think that's the big takeaway this morning. That by providing a redeemer for Naomi, God demonstrates his covenant faithfulness to all his people. Not just Naomi, not just the town of Bethlehem, but all of Israel through King David. They're going to experience the blessing of this child. And so will we. Genealogies are important. In fact, two of the gospel writers, Matthew and Luke, begin with genealogies as they trace the heritage of the Lord Jesus all the way back to this little town of Bethlehem. Matthew chapter 1. Here's how Matthew begins his gospel. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron. Does this sound familiar? Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. This, friends, is the really big reveal. Ruth is one of the foremothers of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Redeemer, our great Redeemer. God has not left Naomi without a Redeemer, nor has he left us without a Redeemer. There is a Redeemer, Jesus Christ, God's own Son. Naomi, her Redeemer, the townswomen named him Obed. Obed means servant. Jesus was the suffering servant who served 
us by laying down his life. He said, I came not to be served, but to serve and to lay down my life as a ransom for many. Paul puts it this way in the book of Titus. This is Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the, re- the appearing and of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Jesus came and he redeemed. It's the picture of salvation that is the picture of of buying something back, something that was lost, something that was in the clutches of someone else. We're all by, by... nature and by birth and by our own sinful choices the possession of the evil one and our destiny is eternal separation from him apart from a redeemer who will buy us back and Jesus bought us back with the price of his own blood on the cross he died giving his life for all who would put their faith and trust in him And this morning, if you don't know the joy of that, if you don't know the joy of being bought back by your Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, I urge you to come to him this morning through repentance, through trusting in him as your Redeemer. He is the one, the Apostle Paul, he talks about in Ephesians chapter 5, who who, um, loved us as his bride, and gave himself up for us. Think about the picture there, how how Boaz bought Ruth to be his bride. Jesus, our greater redeemer, buys his people back by the price of his blood to be his eternal bride, to be his people. You see, by providing a redeemer for Naomi, God demonstrates his covenant faithfulness, his covenant love, his grace to all his people. Now, friends, I'm sure you sense that that demands a response, doesn't it? We, we have to respond to that reality. Uh, such a good and gracious God, his faithfulness. And I want to just point us toward three lines of response or application as we wrap it up here this morning. And I, and I want us to follow the, the um, lead of the women of Bethlehem. How should we respond? How do we respond to not being left without a redeemer, but having this great redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, look how the women responded of the town in verse 14, chapter 4, verse 14 of Ruth. The women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer. There it is, friends. How do we respond to God's grace in our lives? By praising him. Blessed be the Lord. God, you are great. God, you are wonderful. God, you are the the God of great reversals in our lives. You are the one who is praiseworthy. So how can we bless God for providing us with a redeemer? Three directions I want to point us in this morning. The first is this. Lift your voice regularly. 
How can we declare God's praiseworthiness in sending us a redeemer? Lift your voice regularly. Singing songs like we've been singing this morning that focus on the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, let's do that in our, per in our own individual lives. Uh, my, by God's grace, a habit that at some point the Lord led me to is reading a psalm every morning. And the psalms so wonderfully give voice uh, to our worship by following the pattern of generations of God's people. And the Psalms, as you read them, focus and point us toward the redeeming work of the Lord Jesus. So however that looks in your personal walk with the Lord, make sure there are times of personal worship, regular rhythms of worship in your life. But then also, do not forsake the gathering of God's people together. I mean, hasn't it been, this been one of the most difficult things about this whole COVID season? The limitations that we've had on gathering like this. My goodness, when I was here, I think just about a year ago, there was a small percentage of, of this congregation gathered together. It is such a wonderful thing to see faces I saw last time and then so many other faces gathered as God's people. And I know there are some that are still not able to do that for, for various reasons, but what a gift corporate worship is. And as we gather, the focus of our attention is the Lord Jesus Christ is all that he is for us through his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his reign as the true son of David. So lift your voice regularly. Second, live your life faithfully. Live your life faithfully. Our lives are to be a demonstration of what, what God has done in redeeming us. So let's live our lives faithfully. I mean, that, that, that was a, we see that in, in Ruth and in Boaz in this story just living their lives faithfully in the common everyday aspects of life. Ruth going out to faithfully glean and provide for her mother-in-law. Uh, Boaz being a faithful uh, employer and farmer and, and caretaker for the community. I don't think when he went to his field that day, hey, I'm going to do this spectacular thing and marry this young woman in the field and then Jesus is going to descend from him. No idea, right? He just went to work in the morning. He was faithful as a follower of Christ where he had been called. I love the title of Eugene Peterson's classic book on Christian discipleship, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. That, that, that almost says it all. That's what the Christian life is, a long obedience in the same direction. And he says this in that book. There is a great market for religious experience in our world. There is little enthusiasm for, for the patient acquisition of virtue. Little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what earlier generations of Christians called holiness. Religion in our time has been captured by the tourist mindset. Religion is understood as a visit to an attractive site to be made when we have adequate leisure. I find that quote convicting because so often we want our spiritual lives to have these wonderful highs and, and these spectacular moments. Uh, but so much of being a disciple of Christ is just that day in and day out, faithful obedience into whatever he has called us. And I would just encourage, especially I'm getting old, going to be a grandfather next month, so I'm kind of at this stage of life where I'm just kind of 
trying to say old wise stuff, I guess. I don't know. Just a lot, lot, lot of road, as much road behind for sure as I have ahead. So I'm looking at the road behind. And just to, to the younger folks today, I think there's a, there's a great pressure to, in Christian circles and out of Christian circles, I've got to do something spectacular. I've got to do something amazing. Yeah, maybe. But most of life is just the everyday faithfulness. What has God called me to do today? Will I be faithful? Will I honor him in that? Let's live our lives faithfully. And finally, let's look for God's activity. Lift your voice regularly. Live your life faithfully. Finally, look for God's activity. We should consciously do this. We should consciously look at our lives and identify God's faithful activities along the pathway. Again, that's an advantage, I will say, of getting older. But we should all be able to do this. I think about the story I just told of serving at uh, Kishwaukee Bible Church and how God used that. But there are other stories where, where you know, even, even my own sinful choices, they were sinful and they were wrong, but, but God, in his faithfulness, used that. I mean, think about... Think about the, the folks that are highlighted in, in Matthew's genealogy that I read a few moments ago. Um, the women who are highlighted, scandal in all of their lives. Some of their doing, mostly not of their doing. Tamar and Rahab and Ruth, who's an outsider, who's a Moabite. And then if, I didn't even read to David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. That says a lot right there. And yet God works these things. They weren't good necessarily, but God works them for his good. Think about what Joseph said to his brothers at the end of, we read at the end of book, the book of Genesis. You meant it for evil. You meant it. God meant it for good. Have you traced that through your life? Have you, have you seen where it was evil, but God's used it for good? Those circumstances were difficult, but God was molding and shaping me in the moment. If you can't always understand God's reasons for doing things, in fact, there's a little saying, a little confession time. We've got time for confession? Okay, quick confession. There's a little saying that people say that really I can't stand. And they say, well, everything happens for a reason. Everything, everything happens for a reason. I don't believe that for a second. I think if God is sovereign in this universe, everything happens for a million and a billion reasons. God is working out so many things at the same time. It's not just for one reason. He is doing all kinds of things for his glory, for the good of his people. Let's trace those in our lives, and it will, be a, it will be a cause for worship. It will be a cause for celebration. It will be a cause for us saying with Job, who went through as difficult a circumstances as I can imagine every, anyone ever did, yet he was able to say, I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that my Redeemer lives, and that at last he will stand upon the earth. Friends, that ought to fill us with great hope. God is always up to something. He specializes in great reversals. Right from the beginning of time, when the man and the woman fell into sin and it should have been all over, God promised a Savior. 
He promised a redeemer. He promised the seed of the woman. He promised that he would make a great reversal in the universe. And he did that by sending his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to close by reading the lines of a hymn that you, I bet many are familiar with. It's written by William Cooper uh, some over 200 years ago. William Cooper, if you're familiar with him, was a great friend of John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace. They penned several hymns together that ended up in, in hymn books back in the 1700s. He had a very difficult life. His mother died in childbirth. His father was very distant and harsh. Sent him off to boarding school where he was abused uh, by the other boys. He suffered from mental illness and had to be committed in an age when that was not understood. And yet he penned hymns like, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's wounds. And he penned this. I, I invite you to close your eyes and bow with me as we close with this, the words of this song. It's the hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps on the sea and rides upon the storm. In deep, unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds which ye much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessing on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief, is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Lord God, we thank you that this story in the book of Ruth was recorded for us. And God, we praise you for what it tells us about you that you are the God of great reversals in our lives. And more than that, you are the God of great reversals in, in the history of the universe, that you sent your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be our redeemer, and that of all of those who would look to him in faith. God, I pray that this reality would give us great hope in the difficult circumstances of our lives. And God, I pray that we would be faithful to reflect your goodness, your praiseworthiness in our, what we sing and, and how we live and how we understand your working in and through us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I would invite you to stand now if you would, so I dismiss us with God's blessing.
and then I think I'm going to get to hang out with the kids over here. Is that right, kids? We're going to hang out over here? Cool. All right. As you go from this place, may the Lord bless you. May he keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you through and because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You're dismissed.